Well, I'm glad you're here tonight. Last night, I think we got off to a good start. Um, I'm really just so thankful to be here this week. I, I'm here doing double duty. Um, you're aware, as you've seen these, what, 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 no, wrong t-shirt, but that's okay. You, as you've, you, you're aware that, uh, that salt exists now on the campus of Southern Adventist University. And uh, just by way of brief explanation, when I arrived at It Is Written almost a year ago, I arrived thinking, man, there's one thing we ought to be doing, and that's getting involved in evangelism training and Bible worker training. And as we met at a sta as a staff, we identified that as a priority, and it was something we wanted to do, and we wanted to be involved and on the front lines, but we weren't. And we, we wondered how it was going to be, and we th thought it was God's will, and we knew it was something we had to do, but... Wow, what do you do? I mean, you, you build buildings in Southern California. What do you do? And anyhow, providentially, uh, God has led us, at, it is written, to partner with you all at, at Southern Adventist University. And uh, salt is the result. Salt is the result. And we, uh, we're just thrilled. And I've been uh, uh, privileged to be able to participate in some of the salt classes and see that God is working greatly. So uh, great stuff. And the SALT team is, uh, is involved in an evangelistic series right now, carrying on at uh, Chattanooga First. So as you have cause to pray for stuff, if you would remember the work that is going on there, I believe your prayers would be effective and appreciated. This week, we are talking about um, a new beginning, a new beginning, revival, and reformation and experiencing the new beginning that God wants us to have. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not too proud to admit that I just need to increase the font size here. So uh, maybe that'll work and maybe it won't. So anyhow, without any further ado, which is just a great word, isn't it? No more ado. Let's pray and expect God to bless us as we gather around the Bible tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that we can come to you tonight. We do so in the name of Jesus. As we come, we come here. In fact, we come to your throne of grace, cognizant of some realities. One of them is that there is a God. Another of them is that he, you, have promised to send your Holy Spirit in answer to our request. So we are requesting. We're bringing you a check tonight and we're cashing it and we're asking you to pay us out. You have promised us the gift of your Holy Spirit. On top of that, you've said, ask and you shall receive. In another place, you said, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we're asking, believing and knowing that you hear us and you'll give us what we ask. We know that we pray in accordance with your will because it is your will for us to have your Holy Spirit. So tonight, it's not really, I think, a, a matter of you being willing or unwilling to pour your Spirit out, but please would you touch our hearts so that as your Holy Spirit circulates in this place and looks for impressionable souls and malleable spirits, I ask that you would make us those so that while the raindrops of your Spirit are falling around us, we will not be left untouched. Touch us, please. And bless us as we come to the Bible. 
We ask in Jesus' name, I invite you to say with me with some enthusiasm, Amen. Amen. Oh, one of my favorite times of the year. It's not every year. It's not every year. No, not fall. Fall is lovely. Autumn, where I'm from, lovely. I like that. But maybe even, maybe even it's something I enjoy more than autumn, and that's, and that's the election season. Don't you just get fired up about that? This is when they have the debates and they argue, and this guy's a villain, and that woman's a psycho. She was called a psycho. And, and this other guy, the pizza guy, and, 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 and so on. I find that the election season just brings out the best in people. That's what I find. <laughs> brings out the best in the media. They're so kind. They're so dispassionate. They're so, uh, what's that word? Impartial. So impartial. If you believe that, you believe anything. But come back with me in time to an era when the majority of us here tonight were not born. We will go back to the year 1960. The year 1960 was, a, was an election year, you understand. It would be a close election race. The Republicans had been holding serve. Dwight Eisenhower had had two terms in the White House. And now his vice president, Richard Nixon. Can anybody tell me his middle name, please? Shame. All right. All right, I was about to castigate you. Richard Milhouse Nixon was uh, seeking to uh, run for the, well, he was not seeking, he was running. He was running for the presidency and was seeking the office of president. Now, on the other side of the fence, the political fence, was a young senator from Massachusetts. His name was John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. And the political campaigning was intense and it was in earnest. They were serious, both men feeling like they should assume the role of the presidency. There was much at stake. There always is in a nation like this. President Eisenhower felt like he ought to weigh in and talk about who he felt was the best qualified, the best qualified candidate to be the president of the United States. And so allow me, if you would, to read, I, can't, I couldn't memorize this in a hundred years, to read what he said. He said, Richard Nixon is superbly experienced, maturely conditioned in the critical affairs of the world. For eight years, he has been a full participant in the deliberations that have produced the great decisions affecting our nation's security and have kept us at peace. He has shared more intimately in the great affairs of government than any vice president in all our history. He has traveled the world, studying firsthand the hopes and needs of more than 50 nations. He knows in person the leaders of those nations, knowledge of immeasurable value to a future president. By all odds, Richard Nixon is the best qualified man to be the next president of the United States. And really, those were some serious qualifications. They were so good that some years later, they would help him to defeat Lyndon Baines Johnson and actually become the president. But in 1960, in spite of his impressive qualifications, in spite of spending eight years as the vice president, in spite of traveling the world and seeking to bring peace and entering into high-end negotiations in spite of what are clearly tremendous qualifications. Vice President Nixon did not become the President of the United States in 1960. 
he did not become president even though he was a graduate of Duke University's School of Law, even though he was a lieutenant commander in the Navy during World War II, even though he was a congressman, even though he was one of the youngest vice presidents in this country's history. You see, all these and other impressive qualifications were not enough to sway the populace to convince the minds of the voting public of the United States of America John F. Kennedy was instead elected president, and the rest is history. Great credentials. You couldn't look at that man's curriculum vitae and deny that he was qualified. On paper, you'd have to reckon this man has the right stuff. But his qualifications Word enough to see him elected to the highest office in this country. Now, there was a person in the Bible who was able to boast about his credentials as well. The man's name once was Saul. He became known to us better as the Apostle Paul. He wrote a letter one day to some friends, friends who lived in a city of Philippi, the city of Philippi, that's in... Uh, in Greece near the Aegean Sea these days, Paul was able to write to them <clears throat> and recite a pretty impressive list of credentials, demonstrating that when it came to being righteous, when it came to being religious, when it came to meeting the demands of the uh, religious strictures, if I may put it that way of the day, Paul was qualified. Here's what he said. In Philippians 3 and verse 4, and you can read along with me if you have the Bible with you. Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 4, and I start at the beginning of the second sentence, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. If there is somebody who thinks that for some reason he might be able to trust in his own qualifications, I am telling you, I can trust in mine more than him. Verse 5. Starts to talk about how good he was. Circumcised the eighth day. That was in accordance with Jewish custom. Of the stock of Israel. I'm a Jew. Better than that. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I wondered why he would brag about that. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah, nor was he a Levite. And it seems like those were the heavyweights. But... Benjamin was the tribe from which came King Saul, the first king. This fellow was likely named after King Saul. And so he's saying, man, I'm from the right place. I'm from a tribe that was high enough in God's uh, pecking order to be selected to be the tribe from whence came the first king. This is good. I'm a good fellow. And Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee especially religious, extraordinarily punctilious about the minutiae of legal customs back then. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's pretty good, blameless. If the law required it, he did it. You couldn't fault this fellow. Spiritually, he had all his ducks in a row. And he was about as right as a right man could be. 
His Jewishness was beyond question. Using the measurements of the day, this fellow's credentials were A1. But he then goes on to say something shocking. Shocking, but at the same time, I think, at least from my perspective, something that, that gives people like me, and perhaps you, I don't want to speak for you yet, but for me, what he says, as shocking as it is, gives me hope. He says that in spite of having tremendous credentials, and they don't get much better than what we just read, those credentials would not see him win an election if there was a search for someone who was genuinely holy and righteous. Now that matters to us, it matters to us. Let us consider more the next verse or so. But what things were gain to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He goes on to say, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dung, refuse, that I may win Christ. I'd like you to stop and look at this. Not a paradox exactly, but almost a contradiction in terms, almost. Paul says, I'm tremendously dedicated, zealous, religious, but all of those credentials don't mean very much to me now at all. How can that be? What Paul was saying is that, is, that, is that what he had been attempting to do was akin to trying to catch a fish with a fishing rod that doesn't have a hook on the end. He was trusting in something for righteousness that ultimately wasn't going to help him. Now, you know, I used to belong to a church where there was a very heavy emphasis on the things that you did to curry favor with God. So I understand a little, I could never say, as touching the righteousness of the church, faultless, I couldn't say that. But I understand something of the mindset that says the more you do, the better you can be. And Paul realized that in the doing of his deeds, he wasn't, he wasn't measuring up, ah, wrong word, he wasn't making it, he really wasn't making it spiritually. Even though he could say, right church, right nation, right tribe, right actions, right uh, subset or sect, if you like, even though he could say, right, 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 he was forced to acknowledge that all of his right didn't make him right. It was a stunning conclusion. You see, he realized, he realized that there was something a sinner needs in order to pass from this life to the next future uh, holy immortal life. There was something a person needed if that person was ever going to have everlasting life at all. Paul realized that his deeds and his doing and his goodness and his striving and his qualifications couldn't gain for him what he needed most. And that was the righteousness of Christ. I don't mean to speak in the abstract here, but he recognized that what he needed was Christ's righteousness and all the qualifications that he could earn, all the good deeds that he could do, all the admiration that he could muster up in the eyes of others, all the right stuff he could bring to this thing could never procure for him the righteousness of Christ. Paul discovered that 
discipline and self-control and good intentions and fervent belief, all of that couldn't make an unrighteous person a righteous person. All of, you know, have you ever seen these people in the military and they have a chest full of medals? Have you ever seen that? And you say, wow. Now, I don't mean to disrespect anybody in the military at all, but, but you know, some of those, I mean, as good as some of them look, some of them are just like, well, I'm in the army. I got a medal. And I've been in the army two years. I got another one. So some of them, I mean, they look good, but then, no, 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 all that. But some of them, of course, they're tremendous. And please don't take my remarks as disrespect. You can see these chest full of medals. And they look great. Maybe fellas got a ribbon for having served in World War II and being victorious. Or maybe for being a POW. Or maybe there's something here that says I served overseas. Or something that says I served in Korea or in Iraq. Or maybe I have a Distinguished Service Medal, or a Soldier's Medal, or an Armed Forces Expeditionary Medal, or an Iraq Campaign Medal. And all of these things, they're impressive, impressive to look at. And Paul had ribbons and medals. Pharisee, you get a big one for that. Zealous, you get a, 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 a nice one. I persecuted the church, oddly, in that day, you got a great big medal with a ribbon dangling down. I came from the right side of the street. Give that man another bar to pin on his chest. Paul said, I have got all these religious ribbons and medals, but when it came to helping me get what I most need to get, all of those ribbons weren't worth two cents. Paul says in Philippians 3 and verse 9, I'm a back up, end of verse 8. And I count them but dung that I may win Christ and, now we're in verse 9, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now, Paul's aim, Paul's goal is the same goal that you and I have if we recognize it or not. What God wishes for us and what everybody must have who intends to live an everlasting life is the righteousness of Christ. That's what we need. It's like, your, it's like your, uh, where I work, I've got a little card. In fact, it's in my pocket here. Uh, it's just a little hunk of plastic. But this little card here with, with my photograph on it, uh, it gets me in any of the outside doors, most all of the outside doors, you just slide that little thing through and the door just click and you open it up and in you go. This thing is a wonder. I'm not suggesting that I'm the only person in the world ever to have seen a card like that, but I'm saying the card gets me into the building. Now, if you would say that heaven is the building and you need to get from the outside to the inside of the building, you're going to need a card to get in. And according to the Bible, the card that gets us in there from out here is the righteousness of Christ. That's what it is. Now, that comes as a surprise to some Christians because they feel like, well, in order for me to get in there, what I need is doctrinal correctness now, now for goodness sake i'm big on doctrinal correctness but i haven't read in the bible that doctrinal correctness is the little card that gets you from the outside to the inside i hope you heard what i said and you didn't hear what i didn't say there are some people who feel like their uh, exemplary behavior 
is the card that gets a person from the outside to the inside. And as I read my Bible, I discover that that's not true. Now, I'm big on exemplary behavior, and I believe God is too. But Paul is saying, I had the behavior, and I had the doctrinal correctness, and I was still out here just looking through the windows or, or, or on the other side of a thick wall. I wanted to get in there. I wanted to be in Christ. Remember where he said, I want to be found in him. So Paul said, in order for me to be not out of Christ, but in Christ, what I need is the righteousness which is of God by faith. Now that's something that'll intimidate you. If you don't understand it right, the Bible says that what you need, you know, I, you talk about the righteousness of Christ, and, and, and I'm just thinking from a perception point of view, that's one thing. But the Bible says, the Bible says what we need is the righteousness of God. Now, I understand that Jesus is God and the Son of God, I understand that. But when you talk about the righteousness of Christ, I mean, just in the way I think with my faulty thinking, that's one thing, but the righteousness of, I mean, of God. And Paul says that's what he wants. He wants God's righteousness. Remarkable. Now, let me spell something out for you here. I think you know this. The Bible makes clear that salvation is for righteous folks. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say the, the Bible is for good folks. Oh, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't say salvation is for good folks. It says it's for righteous folks. I mean to tell you something here. When my boy was very little, I have a wonderful son whose name is Jacob, and he's uh, 11 years old. And when he was, I don't know, little, little, we were kneeling down one night, and we're kneeling by his bed, I guess, and Jacob prays. And somewhere in his prayer, he says, and dear Jesus, please help me to be good. And when he said that, I realized dad had to step in. And I said, uh, 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 wait, son, wait, uh, uh, stop, stop. Hate to interrupt you, but I've got to interrupt you. I said, Jacob, I don't want you ever to pray that Jesus would help you to be good. And he looked at me, and I knew what he was thinking. He's thinking, he's thinking, well, I, I shouldn't be praying that Jesus would help me to be bad. So what is it? I said, son, this boy was no older than two years old. I said, son, according to the Bible, the Bible says that there's nobody who is good. Nobody. And none of us can, can be good. It's not possible. I said, Jacob, Jesus wants that there is only one good, and that's the Father. So if you are praying that Jesus would help you to be good, you are praying a prayer that he cannot answer. And you're, you're doomed to fail. You know, here's, here's the reason. As you go through life, you meet all kinds of different people, and you meet in the church folks with all kinds of dispositions, and you meet the people who've been praying all their lives that God would help them to be good, and they're uptight and miserable. Because here's what happens. You pray, oh, Lord, I shouldn't be, uh, I shouldn't be, uh, I don't know, I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be entertaining this thing in my head. I shouldn't have this weakness. I shouldn't be stumbling over this sin. Please, help me to be good. But what did Jesus say? There's none that does good. No, not one. Bible says that. 
So you're praying the impossibility, and you're praying, Lord, uh, help me to be good. I, I don't want to, um, I, I want to find some trivial example here, but, but maybe that would be counterproductive. There's something, Lord, I'm praying you to help me with. Help me to be good. And, and a week from now, you're saying, man, I'm still falling down in that same hole. And a year from now, you're saying, I'm still falling in the same hole. And especially if this is something that's really killing you. And you're praying, God, help me. If I could only be good enough to overcome this, Lord, help me to be good. After a while, you are going to come to the realization that it doesn't work. And then you're faced with one of two options. One, um, uh, stay in the church and be miserable and have a faith that doesn't work. It's broken. Or two, be intellectually honest and leave. Some people are intellectually honest and they leave. The others are not honest and they're miserable and sometimes you just wish they'd leave because they're so unhappy. I said to my son, son, don't pray that Jesus would make you, help you to be good because it's the impossible prayer. It's the prayer Jesus cannot answer. Hmm. I said, here's what you want to do. You want to pray that Jesus would come into your heart and live his life in you. And then if he does that, you can't possibly be bad. So how about we just switch this prayer around? We're really praying for the same thing, but we're, we're getting at it by a way that's possible and not impossible. How about instead of praying to be good, you pray that Jesus would come into your life. And when Jesus comes into your life, he brings his goodness. If he comes into, his life, into your heart, he's got to bring his goodness, and he's got to bring his obedience, and he's got to bring his exemplary behavior, and surely he's going to bring his doctrinal correctness. Now, of course, all of this is a growing thing. So how about we pray that way, son? Even today, my son will pray, Lord, help me with this little thing in my life, but Lord, I know I can't do it on my own. I need you to come into my heart and, and live your life in me so that it'll happen. You know, he's only 11, he's not, he's, not, he's not 31 or anything. But it's encouraging for me to know that my boy understands this thing halfway right. And Paul understood it right. He didn't pray that God would help him to be good. He prayed that God would give him the righteousness of Christ. That's what he needed. Or even the righteousness of God According to what Paul says, it's only those who possess God's righteousness who will be saved. And, 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 and that's why this discussion is so absolutely important. You know, in the beginning, God, and he created, and he made a beautiful, perfect earth. Before that, he filled the heavens with, with angels. And one day, an angel named Lucifer just, I don't know why, but he lost it. And he decided that he ought to sit in the place of Jesus, and he ought to receive worship. And he was, was like a politician. He went around heaven campaigning. Vote for me. Stand with me. I'll take your places. I can really run this show. I'm the one you want in the White House or the Gold House. I don't know. In, in the Big House. I'm the one. He was evicted from heaven. There was war in heaven, the Bible says. And he came to earth. He'd been defeated up there. But he came down here hell-bent on success. And it didn't take him long. We don't know how long. But Adam and Eve hadn't been in the garden long. And he had them. They were given over. You know, odd, isn't it? The entire population of the world, now the prisoners of Satan himself. God had an unrighteous planet. For some reason, 
the only answer is, is love, and that's a love that I, I think will take eternity to really figure out. For that reason, God chose not to wad up this world and throw it in the trash bin of the universe and start again. He said, let's try this another way. And I will make available to you all the very thing you need to get out of this world and into the world to come. I will make available to you the righteousness of my son Jesus. Here's what Adam and Eve did. God came down to the earth with his proposition and they ran. They fled. They fled. Here's what God did. He, pers he pursued them. I, re I remember my mum was on holiday and my dad was, uh, was looking after us boys. It was just two of us at home at the time, me and my next oldest brother. I'm, I'm the youngest of seven, but the other five had already left home. And I don't know what it was, but me and my dad had an argument. And uh, as I remember it, it was all his fault. That's how I remember it. I'm not saying it was. That's, that's just how it, how, it, how it sits in my memory. And I ran away. That was it. I was done. Now, you know, it would be easy to run away now with, with a cell phone and a credit card. That wouldn't be so hard. But back then, there were no cell phones. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. Well, I had a job. I mowed lawns. And I decided I was done. And I called my friend Dwayne, and I said, Dwayne, um, I have to come and stay at your house. And he wasn't so sure about that, but he did, he did agree to meet me down the river. There was a river. We used to hang down a river all the time. And so we went to the riverbank, and uh, it was a very, it was a deep riverbank. The river was quite a long way down there. And so we went and we climbed up a tree, and it was a kind of a favorite tree. And we sat there, and we were just planning really the rest of my life without my father. And I got the shock of my life when I heard the old man's voice. And I looked up, and there he was over there on the riverbank saying, son, it, it's, it's time you came home. Now, the way I remember things, actually, the, the more I think about it, the less it was dad's fault and, and the more I had to do with that whole transaction. If I was dad, I probably would have said, just leave him out there. You know, I hope he sleeps down the riverbank or someplace and gets wet and cold and realizes what a turkey he's been. But my dad wouldn't do that. He, pers he pursued me. How in the world he knew where I was I will never, ever know. But he went after me, and he found me. See, Paul realized that in spite of my best efforts, I don't have what it takes to be in Christ, to be saved, to go to heaven. Put it however you want. I don't have it. And I'll never have it in and of myself. I'll never earn it. I'll never conjure it up. I'll never produce it. That won't happen. There's only one place to get it, and that's from God in Jesus Christ. Only place to get what I need to get out of this world and into the world to come. And Paul knew that he could say that with confidence because the God he served was the pursuer, the God who went after the wanderer, the God who, who chased the fugitive, ran him down. Garden of Eden, God pursued Adam and Eve, there's this, there's, and you know, I'm, I, I, I barely or rarely recite poetry, but there's this great poem written by Francis Thompson, 182 lines. The poem was called The Hound of Heaven. I fled him, 
down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes, I spied and shot precipitated a down titanic glooms of chasmed fears it's okay i can't follow that either from those strong feet that followed followed after the idea was i ran from god but while i was running from god god was running after me the hound of heaven relentlessly pursuing god pursues he's committed to us being free He gave our ancestors everlasting life. They spat in his face. And God, wiping their saliva from his face, went after them anyway, wiping his hand on his side. Adam and Eve, still I will come after you. In spite of your refusal, in spite of your insult, in spite of your dirt, I will come after you. There's a story in the Bible that illustrates it, you know. In Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. You know, when God caught up with Adam and Eve, he didn't even write him so much as a ticket. Didn't do it. Made them a promise. Offered them something. After what they'd done to him. After signing the death warrant of his son. Prodigal son, headstrong youth, approaches his father and demands his inheritance. Give it to me, old man. He was supposed to get it when the old man died. So in a sense, he was saying, I wish you were dead. Now, the old man wasn't obliged. And I don't know how old he was, but he was, he was the dad. The dad wasn't obliged to give him anything. But he did. He gave it to him anyhow, this impatient boy. The father acquiesced and gave this lad what was probably a third of his wealth. Two sons in the family that we know of, the older one would have got the double portion and the younger what's left, a third, a third of the dads. Now, I don't know if you know what a farm is worth these days, but if you take a decent-sized farm and split the value in three and dump all that money into a young man's pocket, that's a lot of money. And here was this boy with with his pocket bulging with cash, chafing to be out from under the restraints of his father's roof and governance, And off he went. Christians today make the same mistake. You'll find people who believe that if only they can be free from God's restraints, they'll be okay. Church can be stuffy, I understand that. And the church has so many rules. And what are those people thinking that they want to presume to tell me how to live my life? And i got these parents who just won't let me live, just won't let me live. I read about a starlet, a pop starlet, no point mentioning her name, uh, you would know her, and she was raised in a Christian home. Her parents were both church pastors in the state of California, and she said they were so restrictive, and they never used to let me do what I wanted to do, and you could see she rebelled, and in her case, rebellion was coupled with worldly success and phantasmagorical wealth, and now she is a starlet and a hero to millions. Off she went. You know, in the book of Jeremiah, God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Or as another translation might say, to give you hope and a future. In the Psalms, the Bible says that in God's presence, 
back home with dad on the family farm, in God's presence, there is fullness of joy. And that at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I dare you tonight to name me one person who ran from God and was happier as a result. Someone who got away from God's clutches and realized that their life had been benefited. Someone who could look back on a life lived separate from God and say, I chose the right way. Someone on their deathbed looking back at their life, looking at the time they were in church and then the time they were out of church. Who can say, I only wish I'd left church sooner. You won't find such a person because it is in God's presence that there is fullness of joy. Now, the younger son, what did he do? He took his stuff. The Word of God says he fled or went to a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Now, he didn't go on a mission trip. This wasn't an evangelistic series. This was all about him living what some might call the good life. You know there's something attractive There is something attractive about sin. You know that. The Bible even says that, talking about Moses and the pleasures of sin that Moses did not go after. Uh, Because it is written as right now in the midst of a project in Las Vegas, I have had reason in the last several months to make a number of trips to Las Vegas. And, uh, I mean, the place is is, it's, uh, it's, it's beguiling the right word. It is enticing. I mean, if you were to drive down the strip, and, and frankly, frankly, with the exception of a few rather large video screens that are playing advertisements, with the exception of those, if you are in your car and not walking on the, on the street, the strip is a fascinating place. The, the, the ar- architecture is, is remarkable, and the lights are captivating, and, and the glamour is, there's a reason people go there. There's a reason... And that's because sin is attractive. That's why the Bible says don't have fellowship with darkness. Because the more you fraternize with what the devil's up to, the more your resistance is going to break down and you will no longer see the line of demarcation between life in Christ and life outside of Christ. The boy's life was a disgrace to his family. Had all that money in his pocket and blew it all. That's possible. Former NBA player, spent 13 years in the NBA, earned $110 million, and before his career was over, he was bankrupt. It's possible to blow that much money. And this young fellow thankfully came to his senses, and he said, my only hope is to go home. I know you know how the story ends. I'd just like you to think about it. The boy starts for home. I don't know why it was that dad saw him. Dad, I'm just going to say he was out in the field working. And he looked up at the right time, and he saw a familiar figure making his way down the hill. There's a hill in in my version of the story, a hill. And he recognized the boy from a distance. Uh, If he was any sort of age at all, he probably looked into the distance like this and squinted and pulled out his reading glasses and looked again. Not his reading glasses, his, his glasses. Looked again, spectacles, looked again. I'm going to guess that the boy was uh, a lot less heavy than he was when he left home. Um, If you'd had to eat pig food, you'd be pretty desperate. So I'm thinking that he lost some weight. And the boy is walking home. What do you think's on his mind? You know what's on his mind. 
I'm going to plead my case with Dad. I'm going to cut a deal with him. Listen, Dad, uh, I, know I, I know I've messed up, but if you would just take me in as a slave, I'll live as a slave, Dad. That's what I do. And he's walking thinking, man, <laughs> I really hope Dad doesn't run me off. I really hope Dad welcomes me home. I mean, he, no doubt he's heard the stories. No doubt about it. On the other hand, dad looks up and he sees the boy and he runs towards him. Now, what's going through the dad's mind? You know what's going through the dad's mind. He's home. Does he know why he's home? No. Not, I mean, not unless someone sent a message that the Bible story is silent about. Does he have any assurance that the boy is going to apologize and ask forgiveness? Does he? Yes or no? None whatsoever. Can he be certain that the boy's life has changed? No. The boy, for all the father knows, might be back to put his hand out and say, got any more money, Dad? Maybe that's what the old man was going to confront. But that didn't matter. Because the boy was back. And when the dad sees his son, oh, listen, this kills me. Worst feeling in the world. If you've got kids, you know what I mean. If you don't, it's coming worst feeling in the world is seeing your children disappear in the rearview mirror as you drive away from home and you're going to be away for a few days or that's a sick feeling sitting on a plane and you know they just drop you off at the airport and they're driving home and you're about to fly off some other place i just hate it if my son came through that door right now oh man i would like that i've only been gone from him for two days and here's the dad separated from his son. The son has disgraced the family name. He's wasted a third of the dad's money. Uh, he, he's wrecked it. And without any assurance of any, any guarantee, without any security of, 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 of changed life, of repentance, of sorrow for his madness, dad runs to him. Now I'm expecting the boy saying, oh no, uh-oh, I'm in for it now. He's probably going to pick up a stick and beat me. That's not what he does. My boy is back. He was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. My boy is back. I would, I would, like, you, I would like you to take a moment and think of that picture of God. You know, as far as I know, as far as I know, that's the only time in the Bible that God is portrayed as running. I don't know of another time. Now, you know the Father represents God. And here the, the Father runs this is God running. What's God running for? He's running to meet a repentant sinner. That's what he's running for. He's running to meet someone with no righteousness, with no goodness, maybe even someone who has tried to be good and failed a gazillion times. And God just runs to that person because he says, if you're walking towards me, that's where I want you. Just get as close as you possibly can. The dad embraces, embraces the son. Put on that new coat. Kill the fatted calf. Something great has happened around here. You know, God, he's dealing with prodigals everywhere, but he's dealing with a prodigal world. This is a world that's in rebellion. And what's worse, what's worse is, 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 is it's not that this is a world that's just gone cold on God, as we read last night, and this is really the theme text for our week this week. There, there's in the eyes of God, if you missed this, I'll, I'll repeat. 
In the eyes of God, there's even something worse than a prodigal who goes off and wastes his money and, and, and lives riotously and disgraces the family. There's something worse. And that worse is someone who might even be in the church but isn't having a genuine relationship with God. Revelation chapter 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. My preference is that you would be either cold against me or hot for me. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Problem with you is that you think you are rich and increased with goods and have no needs. When the truth is that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. God has a prodigal world on his hands. And if we were to use the jargon of the prodigal son story, we could say that God has a world that is dead, like the prodigal son, dead in trespasses and sins. What do you do with the dead? What do you do with the dead? Well, you either bury them, and God didn't bury this world when Adam and Eve went mad. You either bury the dead or you raise the dead. Philippians 3 and verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection... And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Look at this. Paul says that he wanted to know Christ. And he wanted to know the power of his resurrection. With the dead, remember, you either bury them or you raise them. And Paul said, I cast my vote on the side of being raised from the dead. I want to experience the power of Christ's resurrection. He describes... The Ephesians in one place is having been dead in trespasses and sins, but God has made them alive together with Christ, raised them back to life. God could have buried this world a thousand times over and been perfectly justified in doing it. In the Garden of Eden, God could have said, sorry, Adam, sorry, Eve, but you know the rules. You've got to die. Could have wiped them out. They would never have known any different. Could have started again if he'd chosen. In the days of Noah, at the Tower of Babel, even at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, he could have just done away with all of them wretched people. But he did not opt to do that. Instead, instead, God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, has made us alive together with Christ and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the God we serve. He is so good that instead of casting us off, he allowed Jesus to come to this earth on a mission. His mission, reconcile man with God. Unite the finite and the infinite. God's great plan of salvation contemplates our complete recovery from the power of Satan. You might be dead, but God is able to make you alive. God invites the prodigals to come to him. As I said last night, all God wants us to do is be honest with him. That's all. Revelation chapter 3, you've got a pile of people who are not being honest. That's all. They're just not being honest. Um, Revela uh, Luke chapter 15, you've got a prodigal son who, who, who really wasn't being honest. 
I want my stuff, I'm going to get out of here. No way, nowhere in that story do we read that he said, I reject you, I reject God, I'm leaving the church. He was just off to have a good time. He just needed to be honest. He should have gone up to God and said, God, I'm, I'm, I'm done and, and let's talk about this. But honesty, honesty wasn't in his repertoire of, of, of personal characteristics. I don't know that you have a repertoire of personal characteristics, but there you go. God invites a prodigal world to come to him. And if that's you on any level, I wonder if you can be honest enough in your heart tonight to say, you know, there's two directions I can go, to God or away from God. I recognize that if I come to God, God comes to me. If I come to God, the old me dies and through Jesus, an old me is made. You know what's so interesting? Sometimes the Christian life seems to be a battle and a march. And sometimes it is. But if we just let God be God, that's all. Let God be God. If it's new desires you need in your life, God will give it to them, uh, to you. If it's new thought patterns in your mind that you need, God will give it to you. If you are sick of church, tired of the Bible, bored by the whole thing, just go to God and tell Him about it. And if there's even a shred of, of, of spiritual life in you, you might even say to God, I can't make this right, but I believe you can because after all, you are God. You can have that conversation with God. We talked this week about revival and reformation. There's nothing more uh, re revival-like than someone dead being made alive, than someone broken being made whole, than someone uh, negatively affected given a positive outlook. God can do that in our lives, and He wants to do that in our lives. He saved the prodigal. He'll save you. He changes hearts every day. He can change yours. He carries burdens every moment of every day. Let him carry yours. Christianity is simply a matter of leaning on God and letting God be God at all times. Prodigal world. My qualifications won't get me into the kingdom of heaven. What I need are Christ's qualifications. And I can have them for the asking. Lord, Will you give me Christ's righteousness? Yes, I will. Thanks. I accept it. I'm not going to go into the long dissertation or discussion here about presumption versus faith. I'm just going to assume the faith position here. Paul says, my own righteousness isn't good enough. But I can come to Jesus and receive freely the righteousness of God. To an extent that the old you is gone and a new you is created, remade, resurrected by the power of Christ's word. In the end of this whole thing, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back with the voice of the archangel and at the power of his word, the dead in Christ will rise. You can meet the power of God's word tonight and know that he can raise you to spiritual life. Hey, by the way, I'm not saying that because you are here, somehow you are spiritually dead. I'm not saying that. Please don't hear me say you, 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 you're a wretch and you are rotten. But what I will say is that you do not possess righteousness of your own. Now, the really good news is you can have it, and you can have it freely in Jesus. I hear people talk every now and then about this phrase, the, 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 the sin problem, the sin problem. 
And that's fine. I, I could agree with that, but I'm going to take a counter position. I don't believe there's a sin problem. Jesus solved the sin problem when he died on the cross. The problem we have is a self problem. What did Jesus say? You will not come to me that you might have life. That, that's, that's the issue. If people will just come to Jesus that they might have life, there's it, there it is there, solved, problem over, righteousness given, sin taken away. This is a simple business. And maybe that's the problem. All I need to do is ask and believe and then lean on God. And that's enough for him. I was uh, working on an evangelistic series. We had on our team a number of Bible workers, and they were aged between about 18 and 50. And uh, one evening, we all got together in someone's apartment, and not all of us, a number of us, and we had a little worship time, and so I posed a question for them. I said, you know, the Christian position is that we believe in salvation being by grace through faith. Yes. I said, well, over here in the Gospels, the Word of God talks about striving to enter in through the straight gate, striving to get into heaven. That's what it says. Now, can you have it both ways? You are saved by grace through faith and strive to enter into heaven? Please explain. We went around the circle. I can still see these people squirming now. First one didn't want to take it on. Second one wasn't interested. Third one just looked down. Fourth one, fifth one, all the way around, about 10 or 11 people. No one made a sound until a six-year-old boy piped up. He said, um, Daddy, I think I know. You know, there's an old saying that says, Bradshaw's rush in where angels fear to tread. And here's my boy, he's going to solve the theological puzzle. And everyone sitting around that circle kind of looks over in his direction. And, you know, the, the, the parents, there were a couple of parents there, they sort of squirmed and felt bad for me. And part of me wanted to say, no, 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 don't worry, not now, son, not now. Let's talk later. But the other part of me said, you know, boy wants to say something, let him say something. Daddy, I, I think I know what it is. All right, all right, son. Um, what, do, what do you think? How, how, do you how do you reconcile these two principles? Salvation by grace through faith and striving to enter in through the straight gate into the city. How do we do that, son? Well, Dad, he said, you know that lately I've been listening to the story of Christiana. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. That was the story of a fellow named Christian and his, and his journey to the celestial city. And, and then there was a part two, and that was the story of Christian's wife, Christiana, and her journey to the celestial city. Dad, you know I've been reading the story of Christiana. Yes? Dad, Christiana was trying to find her way to the celestial city, right? And uh, you know that the road to the celestial city was, was fraught with difficulty. 
There was people like Mr. Worldly Wise Man, and there were people like, uh, like, uh, help me now. Who? Yes, Slaygood. I never heard of him. <laughs> you sure you're you quoting from the right book? All right, Slaygood. Fascinating. All these different individuals dead. There was the slough of despond. Hey, by the way, by the way, that's the slough and not the slough of despond. Take it from me. The slough of despond dead. All these hazards. And she feared that she might not even make it to the celestial. <laughs> the group of Bible workers are sitting around thinking, where's this boy going? And I'm standing there thinking, oh, please, son, please don't embarrass yourself too bad. Just, just somehow make a point and sit down. But I'm looking at him like a, like a real encouraging dad. So dad, Christiana's heading to the celestial city and she wonders how she's going to make it when there's all these obstacles. But dad, they told her something. They said to her, you'll be okay. You'll make it to the celestial city if you keep your eyes on the light. Now dad, I think what Jesus is saying to us in the Bible is that if we want to get into the celestial city, we should strive to keep our eyes on the light on the light. That's what I think he's saying. <clears throat> Amen, I said. Amen. Oh, that's my boy. <laughs> and everybody in the circle felt like they had heard the Word of God, and we agreed that that was a good answer. Listen, friend, as I read the Bible, I, I, I realize that God has raised the bar so high. He was the Apostle Paul and all of his goodness. He was, he, why don't you all just come on and then just be ready to sing. He was so holy and so righteous and so good. But he didn't have what it took to get into heaven. He needed the righteousness of God. Who in the world can have that? And God says, I'll give it to you. My question is, God, even to me, but I'm a sinner. What do you think I did with the prodigal son? He was a wretch. And I ran to meet him. If you just in some way turn towards me, if you'll give me even this much of a chance, I will move into your life and make it mine. I will give you my righteousness. I will give you everything you need. Jesus will live in you. He'll do all the good that needs to be done. You will be new and you can live in this world driven by Jesus himself knowing that beyond this world is life eternally in the world to come. Oh God, that's too much for me. Oh no, 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 it's not John. Just keep your eyes on the light. I want to encourage you to do the same, friend. Salvation's a simple business. Jesus is the light of the world. He invites us tonight to keep our eyes on the light. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.
www.audioverse.org.